It's Dermot here bringing you a very big interview with eco-socialist writer Andreas Malm. Before we get into that, I just have a little bit of housekeeping to cover. Some of you may have noticed that since launching the podcast, we've generally had two kind of episode formats that we've been using between the news panels, in which a panel discussed recent developments, and more in-depth interviews with writers and different people on specific topics. We've decided to label those interviews as their own series going forward, so that listeners can tell what type of content will be in the episode. Interviews such as this one will be part of a new series titled At The Roots, this being the first labelled episode, and in your podcast feed it'll show us At The Roots 1, or ATR for short, going forward. I'd also like to notify that Rupture Issue 3 has been released, and can be found on the Rupture website, which I'll link to in the episode description. I'll also leave a link to the podcast Patreon in the episode description, and any support through that is majorly appreciated. Andreas Malm is a well-renowned eco-socialist author and senior lecturer at Lund University, who has written many great books, including Fossil Capital, Climate, Corona, Chronic Emergency, and How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Andreas sat down with us to discuss the topics covered in his last two books, similar origins with the capitalist system of the coronavirus pandemic and the environmental crisis the need for socialist solutions to both issues and the strategic questions facing the international environmental movement. It was a real pleasure talking to Andreas and I'd highly recommend his books as they're an invaluable contribution in the ongoing discussion around how best to respond to the climate crisis. Okay, so I will switch over to the episode now. All right, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Diana and Andreas Malm, writer of many fantastic books, including Fossil Capital, Climate, Corona and Chronic Emergency, and How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Thanks a million for sitting down with us, Andreas. Thanks to you. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to join you. So before we get into some of the topics covered in your last two books, I was wondering if you might let us know how you first got into like eco-socialist activism and how that has kind of influenced your writing over the years. Well, yeah, uh, so I had an early episode of climate activism that I actually describe in the opening pages in How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Back in 1995, uh, at the time of the very first COP summit in Berlin, uh, I joined uh, the Alternative Summit and uh, did some actions uh, in protest against the passivity um, that world leaders have demonstrated uh, when facing the climate catastrophe already back then. Uh, then I did a bunch of uh, other things on the extra parliamentary far left in Sweden, all sorts of activism. I mostly did uh, Palestine solidarity activism between about 1996 and 2004-05. Also uh, worked on uh, the uh, in the anti-war movement uh, during the years of the Iraq war, uh, solidarity with Iranian labor movement and stuff like that. But then I had a kind of epiphany in 2005 about the magnitude of the climate problem. And since then, I've had a hard time thinking about much else, of course, yeah. to be honest. Um, yeah. And uh, pretty soon after, I sort of discovered the, uh, the eco-socialist eco literature. And I was drawn into, I mean, deep into the climate movement in Sweden and... Uh, uh, our attempts to link up with progressive trade union activists and uh, thinking about what a red uh, green um, political project might look like 
in, in our part of the world at this moment in time and so on and so forth. And then, uh, yeah, I was working as a journalist back then. And then I went into academia a few years later. And yeah, so in climate and corona and chronic emergency, which came out last year, um, I think you're tracing the development of the coronavirus pandemic and the process of climate breakdown and like really drawing out something that doesn't come out enough in the mainstream analysis that both of them are largely driven by the capitalist system and how this has led to a lot of the warnings about both things like zoonotic diseases and climate change having the warnings from scientists ignored and like what do you think are the similarities and the origin of the coronavirus and climate change and like what do you think is the relationship between the two? Yeah, I mean, th- this relationship is multifaceted and uh, exists on many different levels. And there are links going in both directions and uh, at different levels of abstraction as well. But mo- most concretely, perhaps, deforestation is the second most important driver of greenhouse gas emissions in the world. So after fossil fuel combustion, deforestation is the main cause of anthropogenic climate change. And deforestation is also the main cause of the rise in zoonotic diseases. Because when you cut down forests, you raise them or you intersect them with roads or you uh, build plantations deep inside them, you wreak havoc on the natural habitats of wild animals that carry with them naturally various pathogens. So for instance, bats carry with them coronaviruses. That's, uh, that's nothing strange. It's part of their, uh, of their e- ecology. And uh, and it becomes a problem only when when humans uh, uh, destroy the homes of these animals so that they have to travel somewhere else and come into contact with human beings whom they have been uh, out of touch because they've been uh, living in in remote uh, forests. Um, So uh, the science is totally agreed on this, that the, the, the single most important driver of the tendency for us to see more and more infectious diseases jumping from animals to human beings is the destruction of the world's forests, primarily primarily the tropical forests, which not only hold an enormous amount of sequestered carbon, which is released when when you destroy those forests, but they also house the greatest biodiversity, including the biodiversity of pathogens that can cause infectious diseases. And it's really quite remarkable. I don't know what, what the discourse and the debate looks like in uh, what they look like in Ireland, but in Sweden, uh, for sure, and I think that goes for Germany as well, uh, the discussions about the ecological drivers of this problem is completely absent. It's, I mean, the entire debate is around when do we get the vaccine? How do we distribute the vaccine with optimum uh, efficiency? Um, how do we, what, what kind of restrictions shall be in place? Is it the right amount of lockdown we're having? It's only about treating the symptoms. You would imagine that uh, more than one year into this shit, people would really want to discuss how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we, uh, how do we avoid this kind of pandemic in the first place? But that, I mean, really strangely, really bizarrely, I think, and deeply irrationally, that discussion is just completely unheard of, at least in my country. I don't know what it's like in, in Ireland, but there, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any initiatives so far, political initiatives to address the causes of this problem, even though we're more than one year into this crisis. I, don't, I mean, do you know of any concerted attempts from any political actor of, of any importance to try to uh, mitigate and reverse deforestation? 
I mean, there, there are all, all sorts of UN reports coming out about how bad deforestation is and how it's causing this problem. But I don't, I, I, I have I've yet to heard of any initiative from any government or, I don't know, World Economic Forum or World Bank or IMF or any kind of uh, international body that's supposedly representing the collective rationality of the ruling classes to, to do anything like that. But they, I, I, they don't, as far as I know. Yeah, I think it's... It is striking, and um, I think the similarity is clear in Ireland. Like the, our government's response plan is called "Living with COVID," as just in just like we'll just deal with the symptom. And people have pointed out like it's very likely that we'll end up with a living with climate change or something similar, and a lack of response or, or just kind of a an inability to do anything. Uh, I think, despite these similarities, you highlight how the response to both were actually quite different, uh, at least initially. That in that the dangers of like climate change have fallen on deaf ears, whereas the outbreak of COVID-19 at least prompted some action from the capitalist states of the world, even initially or even in the first couple of months. What causes this difference? You kind of touch on it in the, in the book a bit. There is a difference. There is a contrast in that our governments have been prepared to intervene into the normal day-to-day workings of the market and of, of business life in a very dramatic fashion, in precisely the fashion that they've said that this is not anything we can do. It's impossible when the discussion has been around climate and then no one really has demanded this kind of deep intrusion and, and interference with people's uh, daily lives, as in more or less locking up populations in their homes. No one from the climate movement or no, no climate scientists that I know of have, has ever suggested anything as, uh, as, as super intrusive as that. And still, we've always been told, no, we can't do this. It's impossible to cause this much disruption in, in people's uh, normal lives and things like that. So, yes, there, there is a contrast there. And it has, I think, a number of different explanations uh, one of them is that the coronavirus pandemic early on afflicted fairly affluent people in the global north. So this, this was transformed into a monumental crisis when people started dying in the affluent northern parts of Italy as the third major country to suffer uh, the pandemic after China and Iran. Uh, and at that point, governments in Europe started freaking out. And I mean, I, I'm not saying that was wrong. It's just uh, an interesting contrast to how the climate crisis has been allowed to fester for years, if not decades, because those that have suffered uh, most uh, grievously from global heating have always been and still are uh, people of color in the global south. It's not that the, the it's not that we don't know of climate impacts in the global north where white people live. Of course, we do but they have a tendency to be much worse and uh, cataclysmic and lethal for people uh, far away from the uh, metropolitan centers of, uh, of, of capitalism. And I think that is part of the explanation for the, the difference uh, in, in, in the actions. There are, there are many other factors as well, of course, including the obvious fact that all these measures taken to combat the coronavirus were uh, advertised as temporary uh, temporary uh, discomforts, uh, 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 whereas a transition away from fossil fuels would not be temporary. I mean, it would be for good. It wouldn't be a matter of, of stopping, uh, stopping the combustion of fossil fuels for a year or two, but to, to, to terminate it for forever, for good. 
uh, <clears throat> and that has another uh, logic to it. It's a, the, the transition away from fossil fuels is about fundamentally liquidating a whole branch of capital accumulation, namely that which profits from the production of fossil fuels, which has to cease to exist completely. We can't have more oil, gas, coal companies doing that. Uh, and that challenges very powerful entrenched interests on a more existential level than measures uh, an, uh, announced as, uh, as just temporary ones. Uh, but then again, of course, the, uh, uh, as you know, what, what, I, what I argue towards the end of the book is that if you look more closely, actually the contrast isn't that big because what states have done, uh, as I just said, is that they have only combated the symptoms that are manifested in this pandemic. And uh, states have proven themselves somewhat capable of combating the symptoms of climate disaster, as in evacuating people from a hurricane zone or uh, sending in firefighters to combat wildfires in Australia or in, uh, in the Pacific US uh, Northwest or something like that. That's uh, roughly equivalent to the kind of symptom combating measures that states have taken now uh, in, the, in, in the situation of the pandemic, while leaving the, the causes, the drivers of the problems completely unaddressed so that they can just go on and accelerate. And in that sense, states, states have proven as incapable to do anything about uh, the problem of zoonotic disease as they have uh, with the problem of global hate. And would you say as well, like that, you know, there was a lot of more stronger action taken at the very start of the pandemic. Um, but as time went on, you had this kind of impatience from a lot of capitalist states, like, you know, with this whole debate about, oh, you know, how many lives is worth X amount of profits or economic growth and just this real short term focus on profits. Like, I mean, I know here in Ireland, initially there was a lockdown for months, but then they wanted to reopen the economy for Christmas, you know, just literally to make some money in restaurants, like for a few weeks. And it really caused like the worst of all of the waves of the of the virus here, like just in January. Um, so like, I wonder, do you think that capitalist governments have kind of reverted more to the norm over time after initially this was a big shock? And then, you know, like if this went on for longer, um, would they have less of a response over time, do you think? And they'd just be like, oh, you just have to get on with it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I, I live in Sweden and Sweden was for a long time the big exception because we had no lockdowns. We had no mandatory restrictions except for a few ones but basically it was all voluntary recommendations about how to behave prudently until november last year that's when the lockdown started and the real tough restrictions were put in place because this policy apparently didn't work so uh, we our christmas was uh, under under full lockdown and if you look at other countries like germany france i think they there are quite tough restrictions still in place and have been for uh, quite an extraordinarily long time, you would imagine that, that these states and their capitalist classes would itch to open up and get going again and accumulate capital. Uh, but still, I mean, the, the economies are more or less in limbo, uh, I, I think. Uh, but the impatience is there. And I think we should recognize that it's not just the, the impatience from, from the capitalists to uh, get back to business as usual, but also from ordinary people. I, I, I feel that frustration too. It's a fucking uh, awful uh, life that we have uh, in this situation where we only communicate through screens 
otherwise we're we're locked up with uh, with ourselves and our our closest family members if we have any that's not the way to live and people are frustrated with it rightly the the sad thing about it is that in europe the political force that has so far managed to capitalize on this frustration is the far right that has uh, had demonstrations in countries like germany and italy and elsewhere and drawn in uh, uh, I mean, uh, unpolitical uh, segments of the population that have more or less crazy ideas saying that the virus doesn't exist or it's a conspiracy or, you know, 5G or the Chinese virus or QAnon or whatever insanity may be there. But fundamentally, I think that what the far right is doing here is it's, it's channeling and articulating a frustration that will increase for sure the longer this goes on. And the, the tragedy here is that because the climate movement completely abolished itself at the beginning of the pandemic and suspended and canceled all activities, there is no force that can go out in the streets and say, okay, so you think this is a shitty way of living? Well, join us to make sure that we don't face another pandemic in three or four years that might be even worse. And let's raise demands about how to go after the drivers of this disastrous trend. But I, as, as far as I'm aware, there is no political actor that is saying that and doing that and uh, uh, trying to capitalize on, on people's frustration in a completely different direction. Yeah, and I think the demands are, are linked in with these solutions that are posed in the book in a, a kind of formed as eco-Leninist solutions. But before getting into that, you, you devote some time to rubbish arguments of left accelerationists or left utopians who prior to the pandemic painted futures of fully automated luxury communism. And you instead pose that in order to respond to the crisis where we're at currently, we'll, need, we'll instead need a, a response more akin to the war communism in Russia after 1918 or a salvage communism as you conceptualize it. Can you outline your perspective on this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, salvage communism is is a notion developed by the wonderful uh, Salvage Collective and, uh, and the journal that they have. Uh, and, and war communism obviously isn't my uh, term, uh, uh, as you rightly pointed out, it, it was something practiced by the Bolsheviks uh, during the civil war in Russia. And uh, clearly that wasn't the funnest, funniest time to be alive either, but that's more or less the point. Uh, namely that we are, uh, are living in a chronic emergency, meaning that we're, we're, we're facing a, an ecological crisis that will throw one disaster after another towards us. And if you think about communism in the sense of uh, I mean, the very basic sense of having a society without classes, but where everyone's basic needs are essentially fulfilled, that sort of communism will have to be thought uh, in the decades ahead in the context of uh, ecological crisis, meaning scarcities and various types of disastrous impacts, be they pandemics or sea level rise, or absolutely lethal heat waves. There, there was a new report published in Nature Geoscience, one of the top journals the other day that was duly reported by The Guardian just uh, below the latest headlines from the Meghan and Harry uh, story, saying that uh, the tropics in the world are approaching levels of, uh, 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 of heat waves that human bodies cannot endure. So uh, what's, what's at stake here is the, the very habitability of the tropics as very large swathes of this planet. 
And I mean, it's it's amazing that 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 kind of report doesn't get greater bigger coverage because I mean, what can be more important, uh, or, or what, how can you have higher stakes than than uh, the, the potential approaching uninhabitability of, of tropical regions of this earth? Uh, so okay, uh, this means that we we're, we we will be facing emergencies, and uh, these need to be obviously combated at the source but there will i mean there will also be struggles around trying to survive and weather the storms that are already in the pipeline and that that will come whatever we do now uh, and uh, here i think war communism is a more useful analogy than fully automated luxury communism well that's not an analogy it's it's an ideal or utopia where the premise is extreme supply, that there will be extreme supply of everything, a superabundance of all sorts of goods from energy to information to everything else. I think uh, we'll sadly uh, face a future where we will see radical shortages of very basic goods, particularly for a lot of poor populations in the global south. And these, these goods being things like land to stand on, uh, or uh, air that's breathable or temperatures that are endurable. I mean, things like that will, will become scarce. Uh, and uh, to prevent them becoming, becoming scarce, obviously we need extremely radical measures taken now to uh, uh, reduce fossil fuel combustion to zero. Uh, not, I mean, yeah. And, and do so as fast as humanly possible. Uh, but uh, uh, as far as I can, as far as I can see, the ecological crisis is not going to go away. It's going to be the uh, overarching setting for our politics in the coming decades. And that's where we need to, to think of ourselves. Uh, okay. Yeah, uh, one question I had actually reading the section about war, communism, ecological Leninism is um, like you're very clear that you'd need a state to bring about the kind of really drastic measures that are necessary to stop catastrophic climate change um, and that you need so much coordinated planning and that you need a degree of coercion and that only the state can do that. Um, but then at the same time, you're saying like the only state that's on hand is the capitalist state, but that it would need to be a capitalist state put under a lot of pressure um, from popular movements. And I just wondered about that, like how how would you see a capitalist state being able to implement war communism? Is it not sort of a <laughs> contradiction? Yes, it's, it's, it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Yeah, uh, that's obviously a major flaw of the argument or or gap or or, or whatever. Yes, uh, and it, and it, I, I mean, I don't have. Uh, uh, I don't have a prediction for how these things will play out. I don't have a model for exactly what's going to happen. Uh, I, I just think that the, um, I think two things. First of all, the interventions into uh, the normal operations of, of capitalism will have to be extremely radical to uh, be able to deal with and minimize the ecological crisis that's for sure that that's that's one thing and but the other thing is that i personally find it difficult to see at this moment in time uh, uh, another kind of state apparatus emerging as 
what happened during the October Revolution, that we would all we would all of a sudden have this massive council movement that develops into a whole structure of workers' power or workers and peasants' power, as in as in Russia in 1917, that can replace the old state, because the left is so incredibly weak and the working class is so deeply uh, pushed back and on the retreat politically and to some extent decomposing as, a, as an, as, at least as an organized social force, it's extremely hard for me to see how all of this can be turned uh, upside down overnight so that we can, in the very short time we have, replace the existing state apparatuses with completely different structures. Uh, as in the classical model of, of the Bolshevik revolution and its, and its later uh, successors. Uh, or, yeah, well, uh, well let, let's not go into, into that complicated history. But let me also say that once you get a process of transition underway, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to predict uh, what will happen. Because if you start implementing uh, what would be transitional demands, as in, for instance, uh, nationalizing private fossil fuel corporations and forcing them to terminate the fossil fuel production and become completely different kinds of entities doing other stuff, uh, you are already so fundamentally changing property relations by doing that, that you might set in motion forces that go beyond the bourgeois capitalist states. And if, if that ever happens, it might well set in train consequences that will lead to the state ceasing to be capitalist in, in, in one way, in some way. Uh, but how, I mean, how that will pan out is extremely difficult to envision. And uh, it's for me, it's also difficult to fit into the classical model of dual power and uh, I mean, Lenin state and revolution and, and all this. Uh, but, but I think we, we can, we can uh, establish that the changes will have to be extremely radical and the states that exist today are not going to undertake those changes of their own accord, of their own volition. They will have to be pushed and compelled to do it by forces external to the state. And of course, if these forces become powerful enough to push the state in that direction, maybe they, they will merge with the state or, or they will so fundamentally transform the state that you will see another kind of, of, uh, of democracy developing that is a more, uh, a more a deeper democracy than what bourgeois democracy is. Uh, I don't know, that's, I mean, that's possible. And I mean, it, it, some of the people who are thinking about disaster communism and things like that, they argue, and I think rightly so, that in moments of disaster, you see popular initiatives cropping up, various uh, sorts of uh, uh, local grassroots committees and, and other communal forms trying to uh, care for people and, and uh, uh, ensure their, their physical reproduction. And out of that can potentially grow a kind of a, a dual power, another parallel power structure that can challenge bourgeois states. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm entirely open to that and many other, uh, I don't wanna close down the idea that we can have a, a dual power. It's just that at, the, uh, at, at this time, uh, I find it hard to see that it will suddenly materialize. But once, once things start happening, start kicking off, 
who knows? I think it's an extremely difficult thing to try and theorize from this position and you do leave it quite open in, in a chronic emergency, but also in how to blow up a pipeline uh, that we, it's very tough to prescribe methods of action at this stage and, and we shouldn't close off. Uh, and we're, we'll get into that, obviously, when we move on to the next book. But but I think just before we move off um, the last book, tied into that vision of salvage communism is what you outline as ecological Leninism. We'd obviously be fans of the term or perspective, but you might outline this. I know that you mentioned three principles in the book, which I thought were, were quite intuitive. Yeah, first of all, I should say that the both the stuff on, on ecological war communism and ecological Leninism is an extremely rough and crude sketch in this book. It's something I spent like five or seven days writing about. Uh, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that a conversation around ecological communism is emerging that is a, an entirely collective conversation. So it's, it, it, there are lots of comrades right now thinking in these terms. Uh, there, there will be an event uh, in about a month where uh, some of us will discuss what, what this means or what it could potentially mean. Because uh, some, are, some comrades are uh, looking at various aspects of Leninist politics that might be inspiring and useful at this moment in time. And uh, so others have stressed other aspects. What I emphasize in my sketch here in, in the book, which needs to be much elaborated and, and refined, uh, is first of all, that the, the task for the left in this chronic emergency is logically similar to the task Lenin faced, and not only Lenin, but Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, and the other uh, anti-war uh, revolutionary Marxists when the First World War broke out. And that, that task, that challenge was and is to transform uh, 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 an acute crisis into a political crisis. I mean, the, the way that Lenin and Luxemburg and Liebknecht put it was, of course, that so we have those ruling capitalist classes that have uh, thrown us into this cat catastrophic war and that keep sending millions of people to die on the battlefields for no good reason. And, and if we want to end this war and make sure it doesn't happen again, we have to topple those classes and uh, remove them from power. So the, the crisis of the symptoms has to be turned into a crisis for the drivers. And it's the same thing today. Uh, the task when we face uh, disasters like this pandemic, <coughs> sorry, or whatever extreme weather event that's coming next to Ireland or to Sweden or to, to the US or to obviously Mozambique or the Philippines or India or any other country in the global south is to try to uh, use those moments of crisis to uh, shift the political focus onto the drivers that caused these crises in the first place and challenge the class interests that keep business as usual going. And I think it's, this is virtually uncontroversial and axiomatic or even tautological, I think. If we don't do this, we are condemned to an ever rising trend of more and more disasters. The only way to get out of that trend is to go after the drivers. I don't see how it could be otherwise. And uh, that ties in very well with what was the thrust, the core of Leninist politics in the years of the original catastrophe of the 20th century, namely the First World War. Uh, the, the, the two other principles that are perhaps a little bit less 
central uh, to my sketch are first of all or less central i don't know uh, but anyway, the, the, the one is that uh, we can't imagine that we uh, can do without the state and without certain forms of coercive intervention into uh, capitalist uh, power. Uh, if we are to combat the these these crises, and the second one, uh, uh, the third one, sorry, is that we are very short of time. And Lenin was a politician uh, of impatience and restlessness who stressed again and again in the second half of 1917, sorry, that, that delay is fatal, exactly as it is now. Uh, but he did the same in, in early 1918 when, when the Bolshevik party struggled with the extremely difficult question of whether to sign a separate peace with Germany. Uh, and likewise, again, he said that we can't delay uh, signing this peace agreement because if we do so, we're just going to uh, face even more disastrous losses and ruin uh, in, our, in our country. And he was right there, too. Uh, so uh, and, and that sort of, of uh, uh, the feeling that time is short, which so animated Lenin during the critical stages of the October Revolution, is completely foreign to social democracy, the other traditional uh, current within the labor movement, which is premised on time being on our side and uh, us having uh, ample time at our disposal so we can move gradually, slowly, incrementally towards something like socialism. That's the, the, the temporality of reformist politics, at least traditionally conceived. And it, that doesn't work anymore. For sure. And I think um, that concern of time and the need for action now is central in your latest book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, where you outline the need to kind of confront these interests that are destroying the planet now, and you outline some criticisms of the dominant theories, such as like strategic pacifism driving the environmental movement in Western countries, as well as like these groups themselves, things like Extinction Rebellion. Uh, and in particular, you fo focus on like the baseline unwillingness to confront the big polluters, name our enemies and the capitalist class, or to diverge from nonviolent demonstrations. What's your perspective on this? I, I could rehash my argument from the book, but I, I, I'm going to start from another end because I, I recently finished a novel by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry uh, for the future. And uh, I would say that it, it, it might very well be the coolest book ever written on the climate crisis. And I, I would recommend everyone who's interested in this issue to read it. And one thing that's so fascinating with this book, and it's, it's uh, I mean, th this, this novel is by far the, the best cli-fi novel ever written for, uh, for several reasons. One being that for the first time, resistance against fossil fuel combustion, uh, political organized resistance is part of the plot. Uh, and that resistance takes off after a lethal heat wave has killed 20 million people in Uttar Pradesh in India over, uh, I think it's one or two weeks or something like that. This is, this is happening in 2034, I think. So uh, one and a half decade from now, roughly. Uh, and clearly, this is uh, uh, the, the scenario of a novelist, not a climate modeler, but it's entirely within the range of, of, the, of, of, of plausible uh, uh, events, as this report that I referred to earlier suggests. 
the one in nature geoscience. Uh, and what, what happens after the heat wave is that you have um, uh, a group of young Indian caters basically fanning out over the world and starting to take down uh, installations for fossil fuel combustion. So coal power, uh, coal-fired power plants and oil rigs and drills are uh, attacked by drones and other means. Uh, and uh, other, other actors as well uh, embark on, on systematic campaigns to sabotage uh, the uh, fossil fuel infrastructure uh, and um, uh, build a, 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 an incentive structure, if you like, where investors know that if they uh, try to make further profit from fossil fuel uh, production, they might very well lose their entire uh, property because it would be destroyed. And this is, I mean, this is pretty much in line, in a sense, with what I argue in the book needs to happen. It's just that the, the terrible thing here is that what triggers this kind of activism is the, the most lethal heat wave or, or, yeah, the most lethal natural catastrophe in the history of humanity in this novel. And what one can ask oneself, well, Surely, sooner or later, some kind of more militant resistance against fossil fuel infrastructure will kick off. But will, will there have to be 20 million dead uh, farmers in northern India before that happens? Or can we envision escalating before the, the, the mass killing, the mass death uh, reaches that kind of scale? Uh, now, it should be, should be said that this armed resistance group that he uh, has in his novel engages in actions that I do not advocate in my book. So they, they start shoot, I mean, literally assassinating uh, executives and, and rich people and things like that. And I think it would be a grave, grave mistake for the climate movement to do that kind of thing uh, at, at this moment in time. And for, I mean, for the foreseeable future, it would, it would be uh, totally detrimental to the movement. And I think that uh, at, at this moment in time, and as far as, as we can see into the future, it's extremely important for climate activists who consider escalation into more militant tactics to be very careful to not do things that cannot be explained and gain mass support uh, for, for people. Uh, the, the problem with strategic pacifism, well, there are many problems with it. And one is that it, it, it's based on, a, on, on, a dogma, on the dogmatic perception that as soon as you engage in more militant tactics and start destroy property or confront cops or something like that, you alienate the masses and completely lose your popular support. That thesis has been gainsaid many times, most recently in 2020, when the Black Lives Matter movement became uh, uh, the largest social movement in US history, counted by the number of people participating in demonstrations, somewhere between 15 and 30 million people. And it all started with the good people in Minneapolis taking over, storming and burning down the police station in the third precinct of that city where the uh, cops who murdered George Floyd had been based. That's, that was the catalyst for the BLM movement. Uh, and all through the, the months of protest in the US, you had a diversity of tactics with people destroying the, the property of, of the police and other types of property as well, and engaging in, in police confrontation with cops and the, the overwhelming majority of activities that were entirely peaceful. Uh, that's what the strategic pacifists would say is impossible. 
You can't have that diversity. As soon as you do, the, the nonviolent activists go home. It's just that that's not what happened in the US last year. And there's no reason why that law would apply to the climate movement, I think. I think the climate movement needs the kind of radical flank that we saw on the streets uh, after the murder of George Floyd. Uh, it's just that that radical flank needs to move in tandem with uh, the masses, uh, again, just as we saw uh, last year. And I, I hope that once the climate movement get back on its feet and out on the streets again, uh, uh, in, in what will be uh, presumably a new wave of activism, perhaps uh, induced by some other climate catastrophe, or some impact, some extreme weather event, that it will diversify and grow by an order of magnitude or more and become uh, more radical. Yeah, I really enjoyed um, those bits of the book where you're kind of doing a history lesson of social movements and how the idea that it's only nonviolent action on its own that ever works and any use of violent action condemns them to, you know, just being repressed or putting off people. Um, like I thought it was a good corrective to the dominant view, but like if the dominant view, like say in organisations like Extinction Rebellion, um, is that only nonviolence um, forever is the way forward. Like it's so historically inaccurate. Like why do you think it emerged in the first place? I think that this kind of strategic pacifism emerges in a kind of political vacuum where young activists have uh, lost the knowledge of the, all the histories of social struggles that have looked very differently. So, I mean, in, on the left in the 1970s, the idea that you can only make progress by being entirely nonviolent and not, not even damaging goods would not have made much sense because people were then aware of what sorts of struggles were going on, going on around them all over the world from Vietnam to the, to the Black Panthers and so on. And it was very clear that progressive struggles were waged by other means than just complete peacefulness. Uh, to, to some activists uh, in countries like the UK and the US, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And they, they are cut off from that historical legacy uh, for, for many reasons. Uh, then, and then I also think that the climate movement in countries like these, uh, UK and the US, still struggle with a sort of a, a demographic composition, uh, a, a white middle class, uh, base that is prone to taking up positions like these uh, if, if, it, if, it's, if it doesn't move out of its own class position and take up the standpoint of, of other factors, uh, other, other forces, other, other classes in society. So the contrast between the, the, the UK, US, the, the Anglo-American climate movement and uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, or for that matter, uh, yellow vests to other social movements that have shaken things up in the global north in, in recent years. These two mo movements have not been based in the white middle class, but uh, in, in working class uh, parts of the population, obviously with, with, in the case of BLM, people of color. And there, both of these movements have had other approaches to questions of violence and property and the police. And I think that that's part of the explanation as well. Yeah, I was actually just about to ask a question or, or to get your opinion, because um, it would have been my own view that like a lot of the theoretical foundations of some of the environmental groups, certainly the ones that I've been involved with, are kind of inflected or influenced by the 
like class character of the NGOs or the middle class civil society groups which seem so dominant uh, within them and it's it's quite tough to reincorporate socialist groups or unions back onto the platform um but i think i think that is covered uh i will just say i have seen some criticisms of the book um yeah. and just to get your uh, opinion that sure. one of them is that like it doesn't focus enough on the traditional marxist task of building mass support and workers power in order like to disrupt or dismantle the system wholesale and instead focuses on kind of like disruptive actions as a way of spurring on that confrontation or bringing people in um or in other words like putting forward the idea that like sabotage could form part of the tactics of the radical flank of a mass climate movement. Some of the criticisms that I've read say that like that skips over building the mass movement in the first place, or is like sabotage a core part of building that mass support in your view? Uh, what would be your opinion on this? Yeah. So I, look, I'm all for a hundred percent in favor of, trying to build mass support for radical climate politics within trade unions. Uh, and uh, the uh, party that I belong to and have belonged to for quite some time now, the Swedish section of the Fourth International, so sort of trot uh, group, uh, has uh, uh, campaigned for this with its small but very, very good resources in terms of caters in the unions. And haven't got very far so far. Uh, and uh, I, I no longer think, if I ever did, that the mass movement against fossil capital and for climate justice will first emerge from the trade unions. The, the actually existing mass movement uh, against the climate crisis that we've seen in Europe uh, the one that we saw in 2019 was not a phenomenon that came out of trade unions, but that was organized actually not on, on, uh, uh, on categories of class, but on categories of age. So it was a youth movement that then managed to draw in certain union components here and there, perhaps most notably in Germany, where you had uh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the union organizing the public sector, uh, or a large, large part of it at least, eventually coming out and joining the climate strikes. And uh, that's, that's pretty similar to what happened with, with BLM, where you had uh, dock workers uh, downing tools uh, in support of the BLM movement, which did not again start within the trade unions. But the trade unions were drawn into the mobilization, or some trade unions were, of course. Uh, and uh, I think uh, if you look at, at Germany, the, the, the powerhouse of the, of the European economy and the country with most of the emissions and also the country with the, the largest, uh, most, most powerful climate movement in recent years, the, the situation with unions is complicated. And uh, I think that uh, it's extremely... Uh, imperative and exigent to try to get unions on board. And that needs to be done by continuing work on the Green New Deal or Green Industrial Revolution and, or, or similar, similar projects. But I don't think that we build the mass movement exclusively by focusing on unions. I think that the climate movement uh, uh, comes, is built originally 
outside of the workplaces, not at the point of production originally. Initially, uh, uh, some things like climate camps or climate strikes or occupations of squares uh, that have uh, actually developed into something like a climate mass movement. It did so in 2019. Uh, that is what I see as the path forward that uh, uh, to succeed will certainly need a massive component of union support. Uh, uh, and, and taking this into account obviously means that, again, you need to be extremely careful about what kind of property destruction, if any, you're going to engage in. So uh, uh, if you're ever going to target private consumption, for instance, make sure that you target the richest and not ordinary working class people who will only be pissed off if you start uh, uh, attacking them, just like the yellow vests were in, in France when Macron went after their, uh, their, their gas consumption. Uh, so I think that the, the sort of reflexive reaction to the book that you don't, you don't put trade unions into uh, enough focus, I think that's a little bit... <laughs> uh, out of pace, uh, how should I put it? Out, out, it's, it's, it's a very old kind of reaction that, uh, 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 that posits uh, a hypothetical model for how the climate movement should develop. Uh, it's just that it's not the way it has developed so far. And I don't know why we should uh, trust that it will have to do so in the, in the, in the coming years. Yeah, just on the whole question of kind of strategy and tactics, um, um, you're talking a lot in the book about kind of forcing reforms um, from capitalist states to the radical flank effect. So the idea is that the capitalist state will compromise with moderates in the climate movement because it's kind of scared of the radicals in the movement yeah, on some yeah. level that that's part of it. But then there's kind of that's like a reformist kind of strategy, because yeah. in the end, the the radicals kind of get pushed out and the moderates are the ones who kind of obtain more of their goals. Like, yeah. you know, um, but then towards the end of the book, you seem to kind of be talking more about revolution because you're saying that climate militancy would have to be articulated to a wider anti-capitalist groundswell, yeah, um, yeah. which is in early shifts of modes of production. Um, yeah. um, so like, how do you see that relationship between kind of successful reforms and revolution playing out like is there there's kind of a contradictory process there if achieving sun reforms kind of wipes out the radical flank in a way and that's a good question uh first of all i think we when we discuss these things in the context of the climate crisis we need to always keep in mind that this crisis looks different it's it's it has a different structure from from virtually any other crisis that we've experienced and that is it is bound to deteriorate. It's built into the crisis that it will get worse. Uh, I mean, even, even, if we, even if all emissions were terminated tomorrow morning, you would still have a lot of heating in the pipeline of the earth system that would see the impacts of climate change uh, worsen for some time before things started to stabilize. And what what I, why this is or this is so important in, in many different uh, in many different um, uh, 
regards, but respects, but one being that if you have a situation that the one that you describe, uh, which is in a way a correct interpretation of the book that, okay, you have a sort of um, uh, agreement between the existing an existing governance government or capitalist state and the mainstream of the climate movement, uh, thanks to a radical flank. And the, uh, this agreement will make the radical flank uh, lose uh, its political space. It would be excluded and denied and pushed into the background. And then things can proceed uh, as normal. I mean, this is roughly what happened with, with the relation between the civil rights movement in the US and the, and the United States state apparatus, uh, which is obviously the, the origin of the whole theory of the radical flank. But here, it's not that the, the, the crisis can be, uh, how shall I put it, that the crisis will revert to a more normal level once you have certain legislation, certain laws in place, because the crisis will get worse, the demand for more radical measures will increase uh, as, the, as the only way to get out of this crisis. So the, the radical, a radical flank of the climate movement, I think, will, will, not, be, will not become obsolete in the, in the, in the moment of, of this kind of hypothetical agreement between the mainstream and the state. Because next year, when the, when the, imp, when the impacts of the climate crisis are even worse, the call for even deeper uh, emissions cuts will be raised again, and you will have an ongoing dynamic of uh, a more deeper and, and fundamental transformation of how our economies work uh, because the crisis will deepen. Uh, and the only way to, to, to mitigate it is to become more radical. This again is laid out in a fantastic manner in Kim Stanley Robinson's novel, which is the, the 600 pages uh, imaginative scenario for how this kind of transition will play out. Uh, and it shows how messy it will be, how, how, uh, how contested it will be by all sorts of forces, how it will involve everything from sabotage to other forms of militant action to, to strikes, uh, to various types of social revolt, and things like geoengineering and negative emissions technologies that we also need to discuss and that I think will be part of the picture, uh, very much along the lines of, of this book, although there's a lot of things to, to discuss here. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, when, when, you, when you think about the transition and the role for reform and revolution here, I think we need to see this as an extremely dynamic and turbulent process uh, where those, uh, the, 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 the impacts of the crisis itself will, will spur uh, new initiatives, some of them in panic, uh, others more recent and, uh, and planned. Uh, but, uh, uh, this process uh, is unlikely, I think, to stay with a couple of reforms that can be contained within the existing system. Uh, but they will, uh, the, the, the process will need to begin with certain reforms. And that, I mean, that's the, that's the original idea of, of, uh, of even Bolshevik politics, that you, you express certain type of basic popular demands that spoke to people's most urgent material needs in a situation of collapse. These demands being peace and bread and land, right? So uh, the Bolsheviks in 1917 didn't demand uh, uh, total communism or, or socialism. But these demands, they collided with the interests of the dominant classes. And by acting on these demands, the Bolsheviks 
set in motion a process that eventually transcended the, the, the bourgeois framework of politics in Russia. And uh, if you, if you uh, articulate uh, transitional demands in, uh, at this moment in time, things like no more fossil fuel production, uh, companies like Shell and BP and Total, some of the largest private capitalist corporations in Europe will have to be put under public control uh, to make sure that they uh, instantly phase out their production of fossil fuels and do something completely else, such as drawing CO2 down instead of pumping it up into the atmosphere. Uh, it, when, when transitional demands like that are implemented, you are in a process that can potentially uh, go beyond uh, the existing framework of, uh, of, of, of property relations. It's just that we don't start by saying revolution now or communism now. Neither did the Bolsheviks. We start by acting on the, uh, the necessary demands of the historical crisis and see where that goes together with people. That's, that's communist politics to me. Yeah, it's very agreeable. I think we're, I think that's uh, spot on. That whole thing you 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 touch on in the book about like dispelling climate despair, not allowing like the crisis to overburden people's ambitions. Because I think uh, a big question for the environmental movement is painting that future, what could be better, and not just hampering people with uh, taxes, carbon taxes, or, or things like that, but naming what needs to change and how it can change for the better. Um, I won't retell the last section of the book, but I found that very resonant with the kind of time that we're in at the moment. But I think that's probably a, a good point to lead us on. I think listeners should listen out for our Kim Stanley Robinson episode in the future. So uh, on Andreas's very high uh, praise and high recommendation. Uh, but no, thanks a million for joining us, Andreas. And they're two phenomenal books. And I would encourage anybody to give them a listen or give them a reading along with uh, fossil capital and your other ones thanks a million to you comrades and i i would uh, i would uh, very much wish to meet comrades like you in real life in, in the in the near future uh, phenomenal phenomenal okay i'll uh, i'll leave it there so and i'll stop the recording thanks Another day, one shoelace bigger than the other people